You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Muscle Podcast, episode number 673. It's better to write a bad first draft than to write no draft at all. Anonymous. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films, from predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them. The odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Well, guys, today we are in for a treat. We have writer-director Joe Cornish. Now, Joe is not just a very accomplished screenwriter, but he's also an extremely accomplished director. He bursted on the scene in 2011 with this film, Attack the Block, And during that time, he also was writing a little project with two directors, uh, Peter Jackson and Steven Spielberg, called The Adventures of Tintin. And during that time, also, he was writing Ant-Man with his dear friend, Edgar Wright. And as many of you know, Edgar left Ant-Man over creative differences, and uh, Joe stayed on the project and continued to work on, on the show. And I really wanted to kind of dig in to see what actually happened there behind the scenes. And Joe, honestly, was extremely forthcoming and transparent about what happened and what it's like to write inside the Marvel machine. And we also discuss his craft, uh, how he is as a director, how he likes to approach his writing, his early days as a comedian in Britain on his show, Adam and Joe, what it was like writing for two legends like Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson. His latest film, The Kid Who Would Be King, which I highly recommend everybody watch, and much, much more. So I want you guys to sit down and get ready for a hell of a ride because this is a great conversation. So without any further ado, let's jump in with Joe Cornish. I'd like to welcome to the show Joe Cornish. Man, how you doing, Joe? I'm good, Alex. Good to be here. Good to see you. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on the show, my friend. I, I really, truly appreciate it. You are across the pond, as they say, right now. Yeah, on the other side of the pond, beyond a couple of ducks and a water feature <laughs> and some lily pads. And yeah, it's nice here. We're having a picnic by the pond. A <laughs> Very bit cloudy, good. <laughs> but we're allowed out, so that's uh, that's good. It's all good. So, um, so how did you start your 
your fairly remarkable career. I know you don't. I don't want to make you blush, but you've had a pretty great career. And I just wanted to know how did you get started? What's your origin story in this business? Well, my origin story is weird because I started out. Well, I started out as like a, a runner in mm. film companies in London. So I went to film school. Then I was a runner, and then um, a friend. Uh, like there's a long version and a short version. I'll do the short version. So I started out in TV in British TV comedy in the mid nineties with a TV show called the Adam and Joe show. I'm mm -hmm. the Joe from Adam and Joe. And that was a late night comedy show that was kind of homemade, uh, TV it was like comedy skits and songs and sketches and animation. Uh, and then that's how I met Edgar Wright. Cause he had a show on, on, on TV, British TV called spaced, uh, while the Adam and Joe show was on, we were on the same channel. So we became friends. And so Edgar, I'd always wanted to make movies. So Edgar, uh, Edgar invited me to write Ant-Man with him. And he invited me to write Tintin with him. And then at the same time, I'd been, you know, uh, reading and learning about screenwriting since I was a kid. And so I ended up writing and directing a film called Attack the Block uh, ten year, about 10 years ago. Yeah. And then I made another movie called The Kid Who Would Be King a couple of years ago. Yeah. So that's um, I've had a weird and then I did a bunch of radio as well. I had a radio show on the BBC. So I've done all sorts of different stuff um, over my very, very long uh, and very important career. <laughs> obviously, sir. Obviously. <laughs> now, um, I see on your on your IMDb, I see a lot of special thanks. And, you know, on like Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and a lot of, of those projects with Edgar, what did you do on those projects? Because you don't have a specific credit. Whenever I say special thanks, it could be as much as helping rewrite uh, the screenplay or it could just be I was there for the day. <laughs> well, it's kind of I was there for the day. Like I was uh, I was a zombie in Shaun of the Dead. So I get hit. I get gunned down. When the military arrive and that big truck drives towards the camera, I'm one of the guys that gets gunned down. So I was there for a day. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm in Hot Fuzz as well. I'm one of the CSI people with Kate Blanchard at the very beginning of that movie. And and then I, I just hung out a lot with Edgar. So I ended up doing some behind-the-scenes stuff uh, on Sean, and I, and I did some behind-the-scenes stuff with the, UA, the U.S. press tour of um, – Hot fuzz. There mm -hmm. are some videos of me and Nick Frost flushing cakes down the toilets of American hotels on YouTube. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. So, so that was that was. I was just a friend of Edgar, and Edgar's a very uh, collaborative uh, friend. You know, he he always shares drafts and gets notes, and um, and because we were working on Ant Man all through that period, uh, that's why he's kind enough to give me thanks. Fair enough. Now, yeah. um, according to your filmography, you also were a PA on a film called Blue Juice. Yes. Back in the day. And I always love asking these questions when you're first starting out. What was the biggest lesson you learned working on that set as a PA? Because I know when I was a PA on my first sets, I learned it was like so much stuff was coming at me. I was learning lessons like by the minute of what not to do specifically, where not to stand, who not to talk to, things like that. What did you pick up? I wish I'd been on the set. I was in the office. So I was I there was too. I was photocopying. I was making tea. I was, uh, like I was just doing dog's body stuff. And I was never really on set. 
I went to pick up some rushes. I flew to the Canary Islands to pick up some rushes one time, bought a couple of cans of film with me uh, on the plane. Um, what did I learn? I, I don't know. It just made me really, really hungry because I felt so close to what I wanted to do, but yes. yet a thousand miles away. Yes. Like I was holding in my hands all the faxes from the studio bosses. And that was a Miramax movie, a very, uh, like an early 90s Miramax movie. All right. uh, so you can see it all happening. And it just made me like ravenous to do mm -hmm. it myself. And also secretly, I was like, I could do it better than this. I could do this better. <laughs> no, said, <laughs> said every PA ever. Yeah, yeah I know. It's terrible. That, that, like if on my films, like I'm now imagining what's going on in the minds of uh, everybody else on the set. This is a load of old shit. I could do much better than this. Yeah. yeah. So the other thing I learned was uh, not to lie. Like one time... I told one of the producers that I could assemble the trims uh, and I basically, I'd learned how to do it at film school, but I forgot. And this was back when trims were physical mm -hmm. and, and, you know, lace them up and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was put in an editing room with a bunch of cans and uh, the, the mag, the, 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 this magnetic soundtrack and I had to sync them all up. I didn't know what I was doing. And I had a massive anxiety attack and I had to call up the producer and said, I'm sorry, I do not know how to do this. Um, so that was a good lesson. That was a, that was a fantastic lesson. Because <laughs> you've got to have a bit of chutzpah, right? You've got to big yourself up and you've got to be confident, but there are limits. Like when it comes to actually telling people you can do things that you actually can't do, that's not a good line to, <laughs> to, to cross. No, absolutely. And I remember my first my first PA job was on, on a Fox TV show and I had the exact same experience that you did, which is like you're you're there. I was in the I was an office PA, so I had all I was seeing the producers and all that kind of stuff coming in. And you're just like, I'm so close. But yeah. And I could do it better, obviously. <laughs> but it's a really useful experience, extremely, right? Extremely, extremely experience. But then you also realize that that um We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You don't necessarily have to climb the ladder that way. And actually what's more important is to be creating stuff because you, you can, I guess, I mean, there's a traditional old school route of becoming a first AD and, but mm -hmm. also there are people that, especially in this day and age with technology so accessible, there are people that just make brilliant stuff. And then you can jump the queue, right? You mm. get to write something brilliant or make something brilliant. Uh, you get maybe to have a go uh, at all the toys um, without going through the process of graduating, you know? Yeah, I mean, I remember when I was when I was a PA and I started going, start to investigate that route. And like, I went to the DGA and it's like, okay, so, oh, you need you know, a thousand hours as a PA or whatever that number was before you can get in the union. And then you start working as an ass third assistant director. And I'm like, mm -hmm. and, and they're like, maybe in 10 years, you'll, you'll get a first AD job. And I'm like, this, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense <laughs> for me. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. <laughs> But uh, but there I, I agree with you, and that was also the time when the technology was not as cheap. This is the, the what is it the mid '90s, so it was still it was still film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
but now I think, you know, if you, if you create something that gets people's attention, mm -hmm. uh, there's lots more ways in, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which brings me to your next, my next question, which is attack of the block. How did you come up with this amazing idea? Cause you were the writer and the director of this film. And I remember when it came out, it was kind of like, it was like a, a mini atom bomb going off. People were like talking about, it and it was like, you know, this year's district nine and all this kind of stuff. How did you come up with that idea? Which was brilliant. Uh, that's kind of you to say, um, it was based on a bit of personal experience. Uh, aliens? Aliens attacked you? Yeah, an alien invasion that uh, <laughs> happened to me. No, that was from my imagination. Um, I guess, uh, so So the story is that I was carjacked outside my house by a gang of kids who look very much like the kids in the movie. Mm -hmm. And it nothing like that had ever happened to me before. I think they were local neighborhood kids. And it felt very, very cinematic. They looked really cool, like ninjas. <laughs> they were the other interesting thing was they were clearly scared, as scared as I was. And it felt like a piece of role playing theater. It felt like any other time of any other day, they could have been playing football in the park. You know, I could have been walking through the park. But for this moment, they were playing that role of being the aggressors. I was playing the role of being the victim. And uh, it just made me think about okay, what would happen if a meteor came down and an alien came out? How would my relationship with them change? How would all the, how would this skill set that they were using for ro street robbery, how would that switch up and become a skill set that would, was, would actually be a potentially positive set of attributes? So, uh, yeah, so I thought that was an, an interesting. And then I was kind of fixated on the character of the, uh, of the kid, the leader, and what would what would cause basically a child to find themselves in a position where uh, they were doing that, you know, on the street. So it was a combat. And plus, this is a long answer, but my favorite movies are combinations of um, social realism and fantasy. So I felt that it was a, it could be my version of the kind of film that I really liked. Yeah. And when it came out, I mean, it. it it garnered you a tremendous amount of attention. I'm assuming you became the, uh, the, uh, the it, uh, the it girl. You were the, you were the, you were the beautiful girl that everybody wanted to dance with, uh, at that, at that point when that came out, how was it, what was it like? And were you still in, in England when and you were in London when that was still going on? Did you, did you come over to the States during that time? Did you do the water bottle tour here in LA? Yeah. <laughs> well, weirdly I've been, you know, I, I'm no, no stranger to LA. Like I've been visiting since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I'd actually written, started the process of writing Ant-Man and finished the process of writing Tintin before Attack the Block came out. So I'd worked with Marvel, Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson before Attack the Block. Because, you know, kind of incredible and ridiculous, but that is what happened. So. Um, it was all a bit bit back to front. And yeah, it was weird. Like I really didn't know what the reaction to the film would be. And it was kind of, what's the right word? Um, befuddling mm -hmm. the level of response. Cause it was like, I'd been waiting for doors to open my whole life. And then it felt as if every door opened at once. And that was in a way kind of paralyzing. Right. Cause you don't know which one to go through. 
and suddenly all of the shit that you've read, all of your anxieties, paranoias, suspicions, every story about how indie directors, you know, get crushed by big movies, right. every story about, you know, Hollywood, you know, um, superficiality or being seduced and then, you know, all those things are suddenly real. Um, as for someone like you or me who's sort of lived in the dream world and read magazines and interviews with our favorite directors and behind-the-scenes books and making of books, mm -hmm. to find yourself um, <laughs> with this myriad of opportunities, should you direct your own things? Should you direct a big franchise? Should you write a franchise? So basically I, I met everybody mm -hmm. and – took refuge with Edgar writing Ant-Man. Um, I, I simultaneously wrote a, a screenplay for Kennedy Marshall based on a book called Snow Crash. Mm -hmm. So I basically just stepped away. Really? Um, you, yeah, you've got to remember I was 40. I'm 50, early 50s now. And I'd had a career in TV and I'd had a career in radio. Like I'd been a, like a minor TV personality in the UK. Mm -hmm. So I think if I was 20-something, it probably would have been different. Uh, I probably would have been ravenous and would have just taken something by the throat. But I was quite cautious and really I felt like, well, I don't need to churn out a film every two years. I don't need to make, you know, Godzilla versus Obi-Wan Kenobi or whatever. <laughs> by, the, by the way, I want to see that movie. I want to see that movie. <laughs> Okay, I'm working on it. You know, but I don't know. I, to, to be honest, I'm still conflicted about it. It felt it felt very difficult to navigate. So my reaction was was to go to ground, kind of thing, and just just go back into working, into writing with with Edgar. And screenwriting is quite a safe place to be. You can make good money. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, yeah. So I did that for a while. But you were but you were offered. You know, you were offered big studio jobs. You, I'm sure you were offered, yeah. you know, tentpole films because that's yeah. the way that's the way the town works. You got a hit like Attack of the Block. All of yeah. a sudden, they just give you here's hundred million dollars, and you're just like, whoa, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. I was talking. I've talked to so many um, directors on the show who've had that that moment that they had that yeah. the, the indie hit, and then all the doors open, and they just figure out a couple of them went down the road and got destroyed. Literally destroyed, and others were like, "You know what? We're not ready. We're too young. We've done yeah. four. Mu we've done four music videos and one two million dollar movie. We're not going to take on Batman, like, <laughs> like literally." Um, but it's really fascinating to hear. Um, well, well, first of all, the key element in that story is that you were forty. And there's a big difference between 40 and 20 and yeah. only, only the gray hairs that are on my chin. And I'm assuming somewhere on uh, underneath uh, your beautifully shaven face, sir, uh, is, <laughs> is the, is that experience that like when you get hit with that kind of opportunity, I mean, I would have been destroyed at 20, 25. Can you imagine? You would have probably been, you're just not ready. You're just not ready for that kind of success or opportunity even sometimes yeah but some some people are good at it you know some, some people, people are and and really you know i'd experienced the production of a big you know motion capture movie on tintin mm -hmm. so i understood what happens to screenplays what happens to what the process is and what the machine machinery is <laughs> 
We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. <clears throat> and then I thought, well, well, look, I'm in, I'm co-writing a big Marvel movie, like already, Ant Man, you know, with a with a director who's who's a genius and is a good friend of mine. So let's just sit here and observe what what, what happens, happens, what the process is, and and you know, maybe just because of what happened on Ant Man, that made me think, okay. Well, is this is this the right way to go? And and you know there were there were peers of mine who are friends of mine who had hits around the time of Attack the Block who who did go and make blockbusters and and you know all we all know each other. Directors all talk <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they don't share it, but they you can you know you can call up yeah. a friend who's and say well what actually happened and no one rightly because it's they have respect for the industry and the process and the producers and there's massive amounts of money involved and huge creative risk so it's not it's not like it's not really artists making art you know on that level um but at the same time some of the stories you hear are give you pause and you think well actually i'd rather make fewer films but they those films be exactly what I want them to be, mm-hmm. then, um, you know, uh, be a small part of a big franchise, you know? So, know. so since you've brought up Ant-Man a couple of times, let's jump into Ant-Man. Um, you know, I've, I've always wanted to ask somebody who's been inside the machine, you know, what's it like? Cause I've, I mean, we, we've spoken on the show to many directors who've been in, you know, 200 million plus dollar films and, you know, big, you know, blockbusters and things like that. But I've never spoken to anyone who's been inside the Marvel machine. And I know Ant-Man has a lurid history. Like it is definitely a, uh, you know, it, it, there was some issues. I mean, obviously Edgar left the project for creative differences and things like that. Uh, what can you tell us about what's it like without, you know, throwing anybody under the bus, obviously, what's it like working on not just a Marvel movie, but on a franchise like that? Because you're 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 playing in some. It's like working in Star Wars. Like you're you're walking into an established universe, um, and arguably one of the more ridiculous characters in the Marvel universe. Who I love, by the way. I mean, Ant Man. Even and that's what I love about the script too. In the in the movies, like they call it out to themselves, like Ant Man. That's a ridiculous name. Um, but when they made when you guys made Ant Man work, when I saw it finally in the theater, I was like, well, okay then. <laughs> They made it work. So what was it like? What was it like uh, being in that machine? Well, I'd have to say, like, uh, it uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe wasn't what it is now then. So we started working on that movie in – I think I've got the – I dug some stuff out here. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a treatment from 2002 for Ant-Man. Okay. Uh, the very first treatment that Edgar and I wrote. And um, so we've been working on it since 2002. Uh, so Attack the Block was 2011. Mm-hmm. It came out in 2015. This is on and off. We both made lots of other movies in the interim. But you've got to remember back in 2002, like what were the Marvel movies in 2002? Like was when that did even Iron Man? Iron Man had already come out. But they were still fledgling. Well, you know, well, one of the first 
meetings we had, we went to, Edgar and I went to Lucasfilm in Marin County and we went and met John Favreau and sat watching the final assemble of the first Iron Man. And John Favreau had read our draft and he gave notes and Edgar gave him some notes on Iron Man. But that was really the first, you know, Marvel was still handing its big characters to auteur directors mm-hmm. in order to fuse that auteur perspective with comic. They would they were finding the formula, right? Mm-hmm. So really the story of us and Ant-Man is the story of a, of a studio that changed its agenda and really, really no longer had the, you know, headroom for a, a, a writer director like Edgar who, who needs to have written every element of his movies. That just wasn't what they would do. By the time we came to make the movie, that wasn't what they were doing anymore. And that's why the final movie has elements of the MCU that were not in our draft. So that's just a story of the history of the evolution of the marketplace and, you know, the story of, 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 of Kevin finding out what worked, you know. Um, so, so it's not as dramatic or maybe, uh, you know, as sort of, um, you know, thrilling as you might think. It's just a question of, uh, of, Times, times changing and what Marvel wanted changing and what Edgar wanted not really fitting in. So in the end, it was, you know, a, a pretty gentlemanly parting of the ways. Um, yeah. And there, but there was a good, is there a decent amount of what you and Edgar wrote still left in the script? Because, I mean, you can, you can smell it. There, you can smell it. It's there. It's not Shaun of the Dead, but it, you can definitely smell the, the energy uh, of, of you guys without question. Yeah, there's a there's a bunch of stuff. You know, there's a bunch of stuff that I think people think is Edgar that isn't. That's Peyton Reed. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the digressions during Lewis's speeches that were quite stylistically similar to some of Edgar's stuff actually aren't weren't in our draft. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's a bunch of stuff. I mean, as you know, a lot of the design and previs of action sequences happens while you're writing. Happens very early. Mm-hmm. Uh, so often that stuff is pretty much nailed down before other writers came in. So yeah, there's some di- there's a bunch of dialogue, a bunch of action sequences. Yeah. I wouldn't but, want to put a percentage on it, but there's, right. there's a lot of stuff there. So, so when, and I've heard this from other directors that when you're working in, inside, inside the, the MCU and the machine is like the, the, the action stuff is kind of just directed and prevised out like almost by itself. Not like this, this is the screenplay, the lead on that, or is, someone else to lead on that as far as just building out the action sequences? Because I've heard mixed things from different directors. Well, I can only speak about my experience. And mm-hmm. in, in Ant-Man, it was all it was all on the page. Okay. Um, but on Tintin, when we came onto Tintin and a lot of the action sequences were, were, were pre-vised already, but they can be tweaked, you know. I mean, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Like uh, Pixar, who you know, when they have a slam dunk, there's a sort of level of perfection <laughs> to every element of a good Pixar film. Yes. And that that's because they can test run them. They're working in animation so they can do rough versions and they can make the film a thousand times before they release it. And now that movies are so visually visual effects driven, they can, they can, they're almost doing the same thing where the movie is made 
in a previous form and tested before it's shot. So it makes a lot of economic and creative sense to draw. You know, it's like people used to do with animatics back in the day, right? Mm-hmm. Storyboard versions and simple animatics. Like the more you can test something before you shovel money into <laughs> actually <laughs> I mean, hundreds, hundreds of millions of dollars. Yes, of course. Yeah. So I don't, I don't see it as like this um, negative thing necessarily. It's just uh, when movies cost that much to make, you've got to have proof of concept uh, in a, in, in a low cost way as, as much as you possibly can. Yeah. I mean, um, fin- Fincher's, Fincher's, you know, famous for prevising every frame, every cut prior to ever shooting. Very Hitchcocky, yeah. very Hitchcockian in that way. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But then, like, there's stuff in Attack the Block action sequences that I storyboarded to the nth degree, and I scouted locations before I wrote, so I wrote to particular locations. But then there are scenes, uh, dialogue scenes, dramatic scenes, where I deliberately didn't do that, and I just covered it um, with handheld cameras. So it depends... And, and I think often Marvel movies split, split up like that or those big action movies like um, the action sequences will be done in a more collective fashion and then the director will come in and deal with the dramatic moments, you know. Um, I don't know. But, you know, we, we left Ant-Man before it started shooting. So my experience in terms of the actual production process is zero. Got it. So that's just from, from <laughs> that point from that point on. Pre-production. Um, but production, no. Now, let me ask you, when you start, when you write and you're beginning to write a story uh, or a script, do you start with character or you start with plot? I start with uh, concept, okay. personally. Um, is it an idea that people can wrap their heads around in a simple way? And then I usually start with, hmm, uh, I just usually start with cool stuff that I would like to see. <laughs> a, moment, a series of moments a sequence an image we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show um and build out from there but yeah you have to start thinking about character pretty quickly uh it depends on the idea there's something i'm writing at the moment that uh the character came late and i wrote a couple of drafts and then my brilliant script editor said look you've got to dig into the lead character because this is just about moments mm-hmm. so we then did a bunch of work and and there's other stuff that where the character offers itself more more clearly um but yeah i don't know i think that's i start with moments so it's kind of like aliens attacking a bunch of street kids <laughs> yeah, exactly. That moment, that kind of, you know, moment that felt like from a, it was from a Western, the confrontation on the street. Yeah, it feels uh, like. The yeah. of aliens climbing up the outside of a tower block. Mm-hmm. Um, the notion of like putting, finding sci-fi in an urban environment, all, all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I like to sketch, you know, draw images, draw mm-hmm. frames. I like to I like to think of a poster. It never turns out to be the same poster. <laughs> but, um, this. Oh, no. but yeah, I like to draw a little poster image. I was just seeing if I've got an original sketch. So for Attack the Block, I made this is the Attack the Block. That's what I made 
That's a really great sketch. That's a great image reference. So I do a little pretend poster for myself. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I don't know about you, Alex. I'm an 80s kid, so I grew up when um, movies were hyped and you just had the Ghostbusters logo or the Batman logo. You didn't know what it was. Like, I grew yeah. up in that period where movies were so marketing-led and yeah. there was a single that came out in the charts with little clips from the movie in the video. Oh, my God. I remember and, those and days. And you could describe a movie in two or three lines. And everything was original. So you had no idea what the fuck it was. You know, it wasn't <laughs> – nothing was a franchise. So I was like, what, Ghostbusters? Ghosts busting? Or that's – Bill Murray? This sounds really good. This sounds good. <laughs> the song's really good. That logo is brilliant. I need to learn to sketch the logo. Should, should I buy the soundtrack album? I bought the soundtrack album. And so by the time the movie actually came out. Oh, my God. You know. <laughs> but the, but I, so I'll, I'll go back because, yeah, you and I are of similar vintage, uh, uh, similar vintages. I remember when Ghostbusters came out and I did everything you said. I'm, I watched it. I'm not exaggerating. I think the record was 23 times in the theater or something wow. like that. I, I mean, I loved Ghostbusters. It was at a really specific time in my life. I think I was... I don't know what grade it was or how old I was, but it was a specific time. I just loved it. I wore out my tape, like wore out the tape. But did you ever call the 800 number that's in the movie? No, I was in London. It wouldn't. I told you I'm no good with diving codes. <laughs> so I actually called it. It's a fake number. I didn't. It was a 555 number, but I didn't know. But that's how insane. I'm like, can I call the Ghostbusters? I mean, let's let's call the Ghostbusters. It was a different. It was such a different time. I mean, do you, I, I I remember '89 was such an amazing year for films. Where Lethal Weapon Two, Batman. I mean, you couldn't walk anywhere, anywhere in the world and not see the Bat logo. Like it yeah. was, it was such an event. Uh, you know, can you tell like what what did it feel like for you? growing up around that time to get, just kind of tell people who are listening because now everything's an event and there's hundreds of millions of dollars at, at marketing and, and there's the internet and all that stuff. But b before in 89, man, there was that logo that's, and then it may be a glimpse of a news an entertainment tonight or an access Hollywood, like behind the scenes set interview or something. It was just nothing. Uh, what did you, what, what was it like for you growing up around that time? It was really, exciting i don't know it's it's defined my whole life because that here i am doing what and, and yours as well here we are doing what we're doing because it feels so it just was incredible um i don't know it's hard to put into words like with batman specifically the other thing you have to remember is there was a six month gap between movies coming out in america and in the uk that's right so so friends of mine would go on holiday to the states and they'd see these movies and they'd come back and they'd tell me about them as if they'd been to another planet or some mythical country. And then that you had you were like desperate for this. You had to wait another six months. So you'd buy the novelization. You'd buy the the, the photo novel. Comic book, you'd, yeah. Um, you'd scour the radio. There'd be, there'd be like features on TV about the new hit film in America. And they'd have like 30 seconds of it that you'd scour. Uh, I mean, for a kid going to school, those imaginative worlds of that scale with that mm -hmm. much hype, uh, just completely all-consuming, all right? Especially there was sort of something entrepreneurial about 80s movies. They they wanted you to be in them. They wanted you to be a Ghostbuster or be Luke mm -hmm. Skywalker. Like they really invited them into it, invited you into their worlds like as a kind of playground. Um, 
Yeah. Is it different now? I'm not sure that it is. I think modern kids maybe have the same excitement, same level of sense, uh, sensation. It's definitely more of an industry, right? But they have ac- but they have access though. They have access to like we were scour like you were saying scouring anything, any yeah. image, yeah. anything, any poster, whatever. Yeah. To to tra- now you just like it's all out there. It's like it's all yeah, set up six months ahead. Magazines. There were loads of movie magazines you could read. Oh, all of, oh yeah. There was one or two little TV shows. There was still ways you could get your little hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but you're right. There, there were fewer of them. Yeah. So. It- felt more momentous and there weren't action figures for every movie it was very select only the ones that hit big yeah so so it did feel like there were these momentous moments every year or two that dwarfed everything else around them whether it was like the first superman movie or ghostbusters or raiders Mm -hmm. or i don't know or batman like batman for me was actually a disappointment really the that first the, Batman, really? I think I'm a little well, older you, than you. But you, but you also built it up probably so much in your head that yeah. it could never, it could never live up to it. It was shot in the UK, so there yeah. were photos in the tabloids, helicopter spy photos of the set and of the mm-hmm. Gotham City set mm-hmm. that were published in the tabloids. But what disappointed me when I sat down to see Batman in Leicester Square in whenever it was was the the curtains opening and it being sixteen by nine. And I was shit. I wanted it to go two, three, five. Yeah. And uh, and I was immediately a little disappointed that it was 16 by nine. And then it just was too, it was too campy for me. I don't know. It didn't work. I was becoming a little cynical. You know, I was an older teenager. <laughs> so my inner critic was starting to evolve. I wasn't just like oh. shoveling junk food down my throat by that point. I was like. Hmm. I'm not sure I believe Jack Nicholson. And, oh, that Prince song isn't one of his better songs. And uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. the pretension of being a teenager. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sorry. I like I like this. I like like the first half of the second one. I think is fantastic. That's Batman one. Returns. Oh, I actually absolutely. think is the one of the best bits in like the yeah. opening 45 oh. minutes. And it's, it's it's Tim unleashed. That was that was like I think the first time they gave Tim a lot of money and really kind of let him do whatever yeah. he basically he could do whatever he wanted. That's why that one's. If you look at the both of them next to each other, you're just like they, they're kind of in the same universe, but one's a little bit weirder, <laughs> without question. Which brings me which brings me to my next question, and arguably your greatest role in the film industry, Resistance. Resistance Trooper in Last Jedi. Thank you. Uh, uh, your yeah. work there, how it did not get an Oscar, is beyond me. Uh, I agree. <laughs> so as you can see, I have a life-size Yoda uh, in my background. So uh, I am a, a Star Wars geek. Uh, the, the audience knows my affection for Star Wars. What was it? Like, how did that come about? I'm assuming you just, like, called up called up Ryan and just said, hey, can I, can, can I just be a Stormtrooper? <laughs> No, Ryan. Ryan invited us. Ryan is a is a is a good friend and mm-hmm. a very very good guy. And I met him through Edgar, and he invited Edgar and me and Edgar's brother Oscar to be in the movie. And he deliberately put me in a shot with John Boyega because you know John of made course. his movie debut in sure. Attack the Block, and JJ saw him in Attack the Block and cast him in uh, Star Wars. Uh, because of that and uh so ryan wanted to put a little easter egg 
for people who would know that connection and put me behind John. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in a few shots. Uh, I'm one of the most loose resistance fighters there is. I'm holding a, the, the, my, my blaster in quite a sort of um, dandyish manner. Uh, but it was crazy. You know, we went to Pinewood and it was actually the day the Brexit, the result of the Brexit oh. announced. Wow. And it was- we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Incredibly stormy. There were massive thunderstorms and this lightning and thunder were, were booming above the, 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 the big soundstage. Um, so it was, yeah, it was weird. And I, Edgar and I sat with Cathy Kennedy and chatted about British politics and what it meant, what the Brexit vote meant. And it, it felt like quite a dark day, weirdly. Um, mm-hmm. But it was very exciting. It's an honor to be in that movie. And you're right. Like, what would that film be without me? <laughs> obviously. I mean, obviously, yeah. you're, I mean, your, your, your face alone gets at yeah. least 100 million overseas automatic buy. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> no, but in the inner geek in you, I mean, you must have been geeking out a bit. I mean, did, I mean, did were you? Did you see Mark Hamill? Was Mark around? Did you like? You had to have. You had no, to geek that a bit. It was Oscar Isaac, John, uh, Carrie Fisher was there that day. Oh. Uh, you know, one of the nice things was the two guys that operate BBA, uh, mm-hmm. puppeteers that that worked in British TV, and they and a lot of the stuff I did on my comedy show involved puppetry. So I ended up just talking to the BB-8 guys a lot about, you know, the Adam and Joe show, and they did a puppet uh, on breakfast TV. So, mm-hmm. so you know, it's, it's, it's crazy, like, being British and, and all these movies being made here. Like, since I was a kid, the notion that Superman was shot here and that The Empire Strikes Back was shot here and Raiders was shot here. Like that was an incredibly surreal fact for me to learn. Like it feels so exotic and foreign, but mm-hmm. yet these this shit's happening an hour and a half out of away from my house, you know. Um, and it's the same when you go when on the set of the Last Jedi. A lot of the crew I knew, a lot of the costume people I knew. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it was it was it was it was fantastic yeah like if you told the 7 year old me that that was going to happen my tiny head would have exploded <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. now you also brought up tintin a bunch i mean how how was it to work with not only steven spielberg but also peter jackson and what is that process of uh, working in that machine like you were saying that's a the completely animated film so that's a completely different way of working um than your normal just traditional um live action so what was two questions what was it like working with steven and peter and being inside of that machine well i wouldn't have the first thing to say is i would not have been there without edgar Mm -hmm. so steven spielberg called up edgar to see whether he was interested in rewriting steven moffat's draft because steven moffat was leaving to become the showrunner on doctor who and Edgar knew I knew Tintin, so he called me up, said, did I want to do it with him? I said, yes, I do want <laughs> yes. to co-write yes. Stephen Spielberg's Tintin with you, Edgar, please. Yes, <laughs> Thank you, Edgar. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so so I was just kind of um, 
incredibly sort of excited and honored to be there. Also a little bit scared, clinging onto Edgar's coattails in terms of having the creative authority to be there. Um, and, and it was, it was, uh, uh, you know, a massive, massively educational and they were extremely gracious really to invite me as Edgar's friend into right into the middle of that process. And it was fascinating. You know, I was on conference calls between the head of the studio and, uh, Peter Jackson and Stephen. Sometimes I'm not sure they knew I was on the call, (laughs) But it was just amazing to listen to how the business operates at that level. Um, Interesting. And, and, and what's impressive is how courteous and respectful and um, how there's not a sense of, you know, even though these are, you know, incredibly uh, successful, you know, like gods to you and me, they behave like um, with Mortals. a level, Yeah, with a level of humility and respect for the process and the money and the um and then and then with amazing skill you know um uh yeah i there's no short answer to that you know there were there were amazing experiences every day like like james cameron walking on and trying out the the motion capture technology um this is this is this is pre pre avatar or post avatar well that's a good question what year was avatar I think that was oh nine. Yeah, so it so might it was, have been uh, might have been concurrent. Okay, it was oh nine. I think was when it got released, but he had been working on it for a bit. I think it's oh nine because it was around the time when I moved to LA, so it was like oh nine or ten around that area. Well, lots of directors, lots of famous directors came in to look at the technology mm-hmm. um, and to see Stephen operating with it, and you know, and and. He says in interviews how it kind of made him feel like a kid again because you could go, you can you could kind of operate in a way maybe you wouldn't he wouldn't operate in a live action movie by holding the the thing I forget what it was called but like <laughs> the, <laughs> um, yeah so so it was yeah it was it was it was uh, I just hesitate to use cliched hyperbolic words like incredible and amazing but it kind of was and every yeah. day different respect um and in on all sorts of levels like the seeing stars and meeting famous people getting to actually hand in script pages to spielberg and him either liking it or not liking it um uh you know yeah it was well let me ask you let me stop you there for a second what is the note process from steven like when you hand in pages and he likes it i'm assuming it keeps moving forward but if he doesn't like it what is that process you know, I've never, I've never heard the story of getting notes from Steven and working on those notes and getting them back. What's that process like for him? Well, I can only tell you what it was like for me. Right. And, uh, sometimes they would be written notes. Sometimes there was a phone call and sometimes I would go into Amblin and sit at a big conference table underneath the uh, sledge from Citizen Kane in a glass case on the wall above me <laughs> with Stephen sitting across the table and I would hand the pages and he would, we would sit in silence while he read them. And then he would oh, tell God. me. What he <laughs> that must, I mean, seriously, that must be terror. Like that must be just terrifying. You've, you're a screenwriter, you're handing pages to Steven Spielberg and then you sit in the room 
while he reads it. That must be nerve wracking. Yeah, well, nothing's ever going to be good enough. It's so it's so like so I just resigned myself to like, okay, I'm going to leave today. (laughs) Like, I'm going to be gone in a few minutes because this is fucking Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson and I'm me. Uh, So every day was a gift. Right. And like the only story I can tell you that's sort of succinct is, is one time um, I handed in some pages and he, and he liked a bunch of stuff, but there was other stuff he didn't like. And he's, he said, Joe, this has gone backwards. Mm. Uh, And I felt, I felt like really terrible. I'm like, okay, well, and then we discussed it and I felt terrible. But then the phone, his assistant came in and said, Stephen, there's a call for you. And he went next door and uh, he was on the phone and I heard him say um, to another writer, oh, this has gone backwards. He used the same line. And Mm. I won't name names, but then I realized it was quite a high powered writer. He'd said that to. So I felt better. (laughs) I was like, oh, he said that to him as well. Okay. so. Sure, my work had gone much further backwards than the other guys. <laughs> so we're good. So it's not something he just pulls out on like the really, really bad writers. He pulls it out for all writers. It's in, your, in the back of your mind, probably. Like, oh, if he got it too, then I'm okay. Okay, okay good, good. I feel better now. You know, the, thing, the thing to say is about both of those uh, filmmakers is how generous and normal and relaxed and friendly, you know, very very hard workers, very businesslike, um, but they're like you and me. If we were extremely so good at what we did that we were humongously successful, they fucking love movies, yeah, and they take it as seriously as you would if you were able to do the thing you love at the highest possible level. Um, but also, there's a sense of joy and pleasure in in everything they're doing, you know. Um, I love Tintin. You know, some people people often talk about the uncanny valley-ness of it, and that may or may not be true, but there's so much other uh, amazing craft in that movie from the way he moves. The, he's unbound from physicality with the camera, right. and his Spielberg's camera placing per se is, and blocking is like no one else's. Exactly. So to see his camera placing and blocking without the limitations of, dollies and reality and and physics is is phenomenal you know and um we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show yeah uh, so yeah it was it was an amazing incredible experience If you if you shall be cliche, no. And yes. about and by the way, I've I've spoken to so many different, and it's fascinating how many, you know, accomplished filmmakers Stephen has touched, uh, in one way, shape, or form. And I've had and I've never heard one bad story, off air or on air, about Stephen. He's everything you just said. It's exactly what everybody else has all these other directors and writers that I've, I've spoken to have said the same thing. He is so gracious. He's humble. He is, um, like you said, he's a guy, he's a guy, he's one of the gods in Mount Hollywood. He comes down from, you know, Mount Olympus, if you will, and comes down and, and talks and works with us mortals. Um, not us, you, you mortals like yourself. And, um, and he, he could be a complete everything that you you've heard about from big guys like that, but he's not, he's the complete 
opposite, which is in a, in a way, um, makes me feel good. <laughs> yeah. I think it's gen it's generally the case because I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions, but certainly all my experiences have been, I mean that they, people, you have to work hard. You're expected to work mm-hmm. really hard, mm-hmm. but people generally want to want to work with people who are not insane. (laughs) (laughs) Fair, fair enough. (laughs) Now you um, often write by yourself, but you also write with Edgar or other partners as well. What is your process when writing with a partner? We take all our clothes off. We (laughs) smear our bodies with butter. Is it peanut butter, almond butter, or just straight up butter? Unsalted organic butter. Fantastic. Then we get down to business. I need to. I need the visual. Okay. <laughs> no, we. Uh, what do we do? Uh, well, it depends who I'm writing with. Um, Edgar. So Edgar was my first collaborative experience, and he he'd made Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, maybe just Shaun, Shaun of the Dead when we first started writing Ant Man. So he'd made a movie I hadn't. Mm-hmm. So he was the the guy, the boss, and he I I was in a position where uh, I was gonna follow his lead, mm. and so uh, like, do you want to know actually how we actually go about writing? Is it one of those questions? Like, yes, like actually, like like yeah, I don't like. Well, the, I mean, the butter was fairly um, very visceral yeah. in my mind. And I, that's an image I can't actually get out of my head. So thank you for that. But um, <laughs> or not. Um, no, just like the, I'm asking the question more for writers who are working with other writers and just to kind of see what, a, you know, a writing partnership looks like, because a lot of people want to get into a writing partnership. And I know as well as you do, you know, working with another creative, I've heard sometimes, uh, you know, you bump heads occasionally, not all the time, yeah. occasionally. So what is that process, especially when you're working with, you know, someone like an Edgar, Edgar Wright, who is, you know, so creative and, and, and you're also so creative. How does that mix when you get together? In my experience, what helps is to know kind of who's in charge. Okay. So whose idea is it? Mm. And whose vision are you serving? So, so with Ant-Man, I wouldn't have been there without Edgar. On Tintin, I wouldn't have been there without Edgar, but then Edgar left. So I worked on it on my own for a while. But then you're serving the books and Stephen and Peter as much as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, and your job is to offer ideas. And just and then and are, have you ever? It's for dialogue, ideas for character, ideas for setups, payoffs, connections, themes, mm-hmm. to offer ideas and to keep them coming uh, and to listen and be sensitive to what the other person needs <laughs> and then to fill the blank space, you know, with as many ideas and then to be patient and tolerant and available. And, uh, you know, because it's writing's tough, isn't it? It's like holding your breath and going oh, underwater. It's very and, tough. uh, it's, uh, and there's so many things to distract you and it's so much more fun just to go to the movies. I mean, the the funny thing about movies is, of all art forms, the the experience of making them is is so far from the experience of consuming them. It's mm-hmm. ridiculous. 
So when you consume them, you're completely passive. You're sitting in a comfy chair. You're shoving candy into your mouth. Mm-hmm. You're just criticizing them and the, come on, like do something wrong, like please me. And then when you're making them, especially writing them, you have to shut the whole world out and focus on one thing and, and, and be complete, completely the other way, right? Spill everything out. Even writing a novel, mm-hmm. the difference isn't that great because reading is, you know, takes effort, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> Just a little bit. Right. Takes effort. <laughs> so, so I suppose what I'm trying to say is that is that to be patient with the other person is quite important and to, uh, you know, sometimes be happy to work around their schedule if they're in charge. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and on the movies, I like so I um, – I've written something with – I'm working with a writer called Brian Duffield at the moment who wrote um, Love and Monsters and uh, Spontaneous and mm-hmm. who's a really great guy. And, 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 and it's my idea we're working on. And what's fantastic about him is he's, to me, like I hope I was to Edgar, just this incredibly um, incredibly uh, generous uh, font of ideas and uh, – you know, the bottom line is to just to have another brain, somebody else to say stuff out loud to is so helpful. Um, that's a very long answer to your question. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. No, that's a, that's a great answer. Um, your your latest film, The Kid Who Would Be King. Um, yes. That, that was, a you know, a fairly, very, fairly big. It looked like a big budget. I'm not sure if it was or not, but there's a lot of visual effects in it. I love the story. I love the way it came up. How did you come, how did that come to life? Cause that's, that was you, you were the writer and the director of that. So I'm assuming you came yeah. up with the story on that. I did. Yeah. Uh, that was, that was an idea I had when I was a kid, actually. I had, uh, when I was that eighties kid. So I was so, um, obsessed with movies and designing the posters and thinking of the catchphrase and stuff. I just used to do them as a kid. I used to make up movie titles and attempt to write scripts when I was like 14, 15, 13 mm-hmm. years old. That was an idea I had when I was a, when I was a kid. And really it connects to your question about what I did after Attack the Block. So after a while I figured, okay, I've got the opportunity to make a bigger movie. Why not make one of my dream projects, you know, come hell or high water, uh, instead of making someone else's dream project, you know? So, uh, yeah, but yeah, so that was an idea I had when I was a kid. Um, but it took I, a while before that got made. I mean, that was it was it did, yeah. So we finished on Ant Man in about 2014, and I started writing. I started making the Kid Who Would Be King in 2016. Uh, so so yeah, so I took yeah. So there were two years when I was trying to get another couple of movies off the ground that didn't that didn't make it. Um, but yeah, and it, yeah, it was pretty big budget. Not as big as it looks. It mm-hmm. looks twice as big as it was. Uh, but yeah. Now, and and do you have any tips on directing children? Because I've directed children, and that's mm-hmm. that's a that's it's a journey. <laughs> well, the my tip on directing children would be get as many takes as you can, and then work really hard in the edit. And even if you get the most superb performance from a child, you're likely to get little bits of good stuff in, in lots of different takes. Interesting. That's great. So, so 
so use the audio from one take and the picture from another take. Uh, build the performance from lots of different takes. Know when to use a reaction rather than be on them when they're talking. So, so, so for me, like a performance from a child is more likely to be elevated in the edit. Uh, you can use all the same techniques on adults, but um, uh, but I've really, you know, Attack the Block and The Kid Who Would Be King have both had kind of young actors in them, mm-hmm. and it it just creates a fantastic atmosphere on the set. I don't know whether you agree, but there's such a sense of um, opportunity and uh, happiness going to work. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Mm-hmm. And it makes all the adults on the crew not curse and raise their game <laughs> and behave really well. The grips, uh, the grips, the grips are a little bit, a little less. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, so I really enjoy it. Uh, but yeah, that would be my tip. Awesome. Um, now I'm going to ask you a few questions. I ask all of my guests. Um, what are three screenplays every screenwriter should read? Hmm. I would say read something by Walter Hill. Oh, so, so good. So good. Yeah. In terms of minimalism and knowing that you don't have to put everything down on the page and that sometimes the punchiest description, you know, they're so readable and they're fast to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anything by Walter Hill. Uh, I would say Die Hard is a really good movie to study because Die Hard is a really good uh, example of rewriting and how often uh, um, necessity can be the mother of invention because Bruce was, Willis was making Moonlighting at the same time he was shooting that movie, so he wasn't available. So different writers came in and beefed up all the subplots so that they had stuff to shoot when Bruce wasn't available. And the way the Argyle works and the way the FBI guy works, the way those through lines work to support the main story is so incredible. And in fact, I, Simon Kimberg, the producer, gave me a copy of Die Hard that he had that's actually annotated with all the different writers and drafts. So you can see where, because he'd studied it and pulled it apart. And little stuff just like the fact that one of the, one of the last writers to come in spotted that um, Rickman's character and, and Willis's character never met. And that was quite the 11th hour and created that incredible scene where they meet on the rooftop. So I think that's a really good example of how rewriting can really enhance um, a story. Did you want three? Yeah, a third one if you have one. A third one. Hmm. Um, well, I must say I go back to E.T. quite a lot because I think if there's a movie you know inside out and is a movie you saw as a child, like if there's a movie you saw as a child where you didn't understand the craft at all and it had a com- and it felt like you lived it when you were a child, to look at it on paper mm. and realize that that thing that felt real actually came from these particular words on a page. So Melissa Matheson's draft of, of e, you know, the, the original, and you've always got to try and get the pre-production drafts because often there are drafts that are just cra- transcripts of the finished movie. Mm-hmm. You've got to try and get the versions that have all the um, shit that they didn't put in, you know, that didn't make the final cut. I, I think the the other fantastic document to study is the that script meeting transcript of Raiders between Lucas and Oh, Spill. yeah. Yeah. Like I'd say that's a must 
just to see the amount of ideas and the way that creative people start formulating a, a story that's as tight as Raiders. Oh. Uh, you studied that, right? Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. We, we've posted it on the, on the website because yeah, it's, yeah. it's available out there and I wanted everybody to read it because it's just the, you're right. Like you, you talk about three masters, you know, yeah. at, you and know, so they come up with, they come up with ideas that aren't that good. And it happens. That's really liberating as well. You know, you, you have to be in a space where there's, where there's room to make mistakes, you know, and no one's judging you for saying something, you know, that <laughs> doesn't quite fit. So to see that masterpiece come from, to see the meeting that masterpiece came from, you know, it's pretty, uh, it's I, pretty remarkable. This is incredible in it. Lucas, you know, the ideas Lucas comes up with are phenomenal and how those like we were saying how you can write from moments, how he has just nine or 10 really solid notions in his head for character beats, a moment, a piece of costume, and then they're building out from those nuggets. And um, yeah, so that's four things for you. I think, so. and, uh, <laughs> and, and Lucas has done okay for himself. I think he's, he's, he's okay. I would like, I would like to see some works. I would love to have seen, like I think Coppola said it, that he goes, it's a shame that George got stuck with this whole Star Wars thing because I would really like to see some more experimental stuff. And I hope, I hope he, I know, I hear he's doing some experimental stuff that no one's yeah. seen. Well, I'd man, I, was, I was, there was me and one other person in the theater in Los Angeles for Red Tails on the opening day. Mm -hmm. So I will see anything he makes, you know, and um, yeah, he's, yeah, he's amazing. Amazing, amazing. Now, what advice would you give a filmmaker or screenwriter wanting to break into the business today? Oh, well, I think um, my answer to that is 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 really just to make stuff. Mm -hmm. It connects to what we were saying earlier about being a PA and looking at the ladder you have to climb and feeling it's impossible and realizing that, that, that creativity is your way up. Mm -hmm. um, so, and you can like, particularly my generation, like, so I, I made, uh, videos on the weekend with my best friend, Adam Buxton, mm -hmm. we would shoot comedy skits and animation and that got us our own TV show on, on, on British TV around the same time, Trey Parker and Matt Stone were making animations out of cardboard cutouts and mm -hmm. that turned into, you know, their incredible career. The people that produced my TV show, The Adam and Joe Show, were a company called World of Wonder, and they managed a, a drag queen called RuPaul at the time, who was kind of underground and hadn't broken out, and people thought was a bit freaky, and it right. felt very countercultural. 25 years later, is one of the most famous and successful people in the world. But these are everyone's creating. They're creating and creating. They're making stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they got other other jobs on the side or you know but you're you're producing stuff even if it was with little bits of cardboard paper like matt and trey or soft toys as puppets that me and adam were doing uh when someone says what do you do you can say this is what i do you can give them something a script uh, a short film just make shit and sometimes even the lo-fi stuff is more impressive Mm -hmm. the stuff without the production value whether mm -hmm. it's our puppet movies or Matt and Trey with um, 
like the first thing I saw of theirs was called uh, was this was it called the Spirit, Spirit of Christmas? Yeah, the Spirit of Christmas. Yeah. That was the, that was the car, construction card paper. Yeah, it was, was it, going around boot, bootleg VHS. Mm -hmm. I saw it in a comic book store. I had I walked into a comic book store and, and yeah. the guy's like, "You want to see something cool?" I'm like, "You know, well, yes." <laughs> and it was cool because it was it was it looked kind of crappy, but it was still fucking funny. Oh, God, it was actually, brilliant. The fact that it was crappiness shone a light on their talent more than it would have if it had had super duper production values. So don't sweat the production values. Uh, just show your show what you do, show your rawness. And um, so that's what I'd say, because that's the way to jump the jump the queue. Yeah. Uh, amen, brother. Amen. Um, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? Hmm. Um, let me think. Uh, what is the lesson that took me longest to learn? Oh, man. Um, that's a, such a toughie. I don't know. I just think I'm, you know, like it's, it's a cliche, but it's always true. I'm still learning everything. Um, I don't know. I mean, to, to, okay, here to finish things, mm. finish it, finish it. Like that's the most important thing, regardless of the quality of what you finish as you perceive it, finish it, finish the draw, finish the cut, finish the project. Don't let it just sit there unfinished. No. It, rather be finished and bad than unfinished and with potentially it could have been a, a work of art. Yes, finish it. That's what Edgar taught me. Interesting. I had a million, million half-written screenplays really? and he taught confidence to push through to the end he'd just say keep going man keep going don't stop keep going man i'd be working on ant-man he'd be off shooting i'd tell him i had some ideas i tell him i'm not sure about this i'm not sure he said just put it down just do it just do it just keep going keep going man that's great keep going uh so there you go that's awesome and last question in the toughest of the ball three of your favorite films of all time hmm okay well Hmm. Um, so it's a toughie. I would say, uh, I really love, uh, the black stallion. Yes. Look at that. Beautiful. Um, that was a big, that was a big movie in the, in the early eighties. I remember when I was a kid, when that came out, it was like, it was, everybody was talking about it. Like it was just like the biggest thing ever back then. Yeah. It's a beautiful film. Oh, so best. And, and I guess, I guess to answer this question, I have to go back to like gut, like non-intellectual stuff, oh, no. like gut, gut stuff that. Um... We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And then I would say Die Hard, probably. Greatest Christmas movie of all time. Right. Yeah. Arguably. Arguably. But it feels like. That was the first movie I saw that made me think about writing and structure and craft because it's literally like a design for story structure turned into a building. Do you know what I mean? Like the actual <laughs> physical art architecture of the movie and the plot lines and the positioning of the characters in the space is almost like someone drew a chart about how to build a story. Of the hero's journey, like as they're like going up and then they got to go back down. It's, 
the model of how to run a story, that would be it. <laughs> I've never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely, you're, I never, I can't believe I've never thought of that. But literally they're positioning in the building where they are is kind of where the hero's journey is kind of going. And I saw it in New York. I didn't know, nobody, when it first came out, nobody oh. knew, like, they were like Bruce Willis and, oh, apparently it's really good. It doesn't look good. No, but people say it's really good. And the only, the only seats we could find were in a downtown cinema and we were we smoked a bunch of weed and so did everybody else in the cinema and people went, people went insane oh yeah it, it was like it's like that movie picks up your oh. your puppeteering rod and just puppeteers you uh and yeah so that's a really good movie uh and then what would i say and then i'd have to i'd have to throw in like a european movie because um like something really like say, have you heard of a movie called Au Revoir Les Enfants by Louis Mal? I have not. Okay. Well, it's a really good movie about um, uh, uh, a Jewish kid hiding out in a Catholic boarding school in the Second World War in France. And there's just something about a European movie where none of this screenwriting shit, none of this Hollywood industrial shit is part of it. <laughs> All right. It's... And the people aren't even speaking your language. Uh, sometimes, especially in a world of massive franchises that mm -hmm. don't really connect with humanity often, mm -hmm. those European movies can really just, I find them um, really elevating and nourishing in a way that uh, Hollywood movies are less and less, I fear. Uh, yeah, and that was one I saw as a kid and loved. And it's, and it's stuck with you, apparently. still stuck with you. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, I want to thank you, Joe, for being on the show and, and helping, hopefully helping some screenwriters and filmmakers out there get to the next level of what they're trying to do. But I really do appreciate you being so raw and candid about, uh, about your journeys and misadventures in, uh, in Hollyweird. <laughs> so thank Thanks. you so much. Good to see you, Alex. Thanks for having me on. I want to thank Joe so much for taking the time and dropping his knowledge bombs if you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash 673. Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, keep that hustle flowing. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com.